ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Hey guys, I sat down with Katie DeLorenzo. We get into two bulls down, back-to-back packouts. Her journey as an archery hunter and BHA. Enjoy the episode. So we're on with Katie De Lorenzo. Katie, good evening. Thank you for taking time out of your evening and jumping on with me and giving us a little bit about yourself and your outdoor life. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Not a problem. Um, I'm going to let you take the take the center stage here for a minute and just give us an intro and some background and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Katie Dillard. I am uh, a native New Mexican. I kind of grew up in a family of hunters and fisher fishermen. Um, my dad is a biologist, so is my sister. So I was around it my whole life. It wasn't until later in life that it really piqued my interest. And in the past few years, I totally, you know, shifted everything about my career and my lifestyle to focus on um, hunting and the experience and solace and challenge it provides and um, the amazing byproduct of that, which is having organic meat for our family's table. And so um, I'm the Southwest Chapter Coordinator for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And I'm an adult onset hunter and an aspiring home chef. (laughs) I hate that adult onset thing. It drives me crazy. Oh, I'm the same though. You know, I started late, but that, and it kind of drives, you know, it drives me crazy too. I see it and it's kind of like weird, but I feel like a lot of people get it right. Like that's um, where a lot of the population is um, shifting these days because, you know, a lot of those outdoor skills kind of, skipped by a lot of us or a lot of people like myself were focused on youth sports and other stuff and didn't 
kind of come back to hunting until later in life. Right. I had a I had a guest a couple of weeks ago say that he felt like it was something that someone didn't want to catch from him. And I, yeah, every time I hear it now, I think <laughs> it makes me chuckle. Uh, what youth sports? So I grew up playing soccer um, and I played competitively and then I blew my knee out before I could play college, but I ended up coaching for a solid 12 years. Oh, wow. Where'd you coach at? So I coached here um, in Albuquerque. I coached competitive club soccer. So I coached everywhere from four-year-old little kids up to uh, under 19 kids headed to college. Nice. Yeah, my daughter is a soccer athlete is why I was interested in that. I mean, outside of knowing your story. But she... Um, uh, yeah, she just finished up her last season um, up north, and she'll be home for her master's. So it's pretty cool to walk down that path. And yeah, it's uh, been a long journey. I think she started when she was eleven, going on twenty-two here in a couple weeks. So yeah, she's wrapping up her career, and got to be hard to not have that in our lives. But you know, on to the next thing. It is hard, and I think that's why I shifted to hunting and bow hunting in particular is like having that challenge and um, achievement orientation. Bow hunting gave me that back, and I was really searching for something after soccer was kind of over, you know, feeling a little empty and missing that that drive and that passion. So that's kind of where hunting came in for me. You know, that's funny because when she just left on Sunday for, uh, from spring break, she was down home for about a week or so. And I was planting the seed already. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, it'll, you know, it'll put that, that competitive edge right back in you. Um, so I'm hoping she says, well, I don't know if I could do it. I'm like, well, let's, you know, let's give it a go when you get home and we'll see. So hopefully she's in the woods next year, at least tagging along and hopefully it spawns something. So. Totally. It would be That's nice. Awesome. So give us a little bit about your adult onset hunting and outdoor life. Yeah. So, you know, I was like 25 years old and my dad um, was a biologist with the Forest Service for like 34 years. And, you know, I had grown up with him bringing stuff home and putting on the table and taking it apart and showing me all the pieces of the animal and what, you know, how they functioned and look in the, um, turkey and see what, you know, what was in the gizzard, what was it eating? And I just kind of had this epiphany of like, okay, I think I'm going to put in for hunt. I put in for a bighorn U tag and I drew my first backcountry hunt. And, you know, my dad and I hiked in um, to the wilderness. And I think in that time I was, you know, working pretty late. So we didn't get to the trailhead till, I don't know, nine o'clock at night. We'd have hiked halfway up the tra- trail and um, threw our bags down, slept under the stars. In the morning, we hiked the rest of the way up, last all day, saw sheep, you know, days and days hikes away. Um, and at the end of the day, some sheep came um, in the canyon we were at and I was able to harvest one. And, you know, we drug it off this like 800 foot slope in the dark and then field dressed it, hung it up and hiked out the next day. And I was able to carry the sheep out on my back, which my dad did not think I could do, which granted I'm 115 pounds. So I was like, okay, let me try. And if I can't do it, we'll switch. Right. Um, But I did it. And when we reached the bottom of the mountain, I just, you know, felt this feeling of accomplishment and kind of what I had missed um, from my soccer career and kind of 
you know, hearkening back to the days where you win a championship and are running on the field, um, going crazy. I was like, wow, that was amazing. Um, so that was kind of the genesis of my reawakening of sorts. Um, and after that, I kind of just went full force, you know, a hundred miles an hour into learning how to bow hunt and just taking a really disciplined approach to learning how to be a hunter. That's awesome. And to share that, that first experience with, uh, your father like that had to be something memorable for both of you. It totally was. And the weird thing it was the exact same tag the next year. Um, and I was able to harvest a you with my bow, but to be with my dad for that bat country experience and then to have the support of my family who are amazing hunters. Um, I was able to learn a lot and be very successful, very fast. Um, you know, I got to go on mountain goat hunts and mule deer hunts and elk hunts and kind of the whole shebang once I said, go, you know, they were really supportive. Yeah. That's awesome. And not a lot of people have that advantage, but man, what a, yeah, what a blessing. So 2018, uh, why don't we hear a little bit about your, your season and, and how that went? Yeah, so I got to start off the year with um, my first archery mule deer hunt. Um, and I, you know, prior to that point, I kind of called myself a baby bow hunter. And I still am, right? Like bow hunting is just super hard and we're always learning and developing. I'm, I'm not a master by any means, but I was still learning the very <laughs> basics. Um, and on that hunt, I basically was out in the wild of New Mexico for eight days with my cousin. You know, I got to do stocks for the first time. I got really close to shooting. I just didn't have that confidence to pull the trigger at the right time. Um, And then last year in the fall, I drew my first archery bull elk tag. um, And me and my now fiance attached on the same code, which in New Mexico means we drew the same hunt. Um, And we basically drew in a unit that's not quite the Gila, but it's close. Um, and it's a little harder because it's like some rolling grasslands. And we worked our butts off, you know, preparing for this hunt. It was our first big hunt together after dating for like almost a year. Um, and we both killed elk on back to back days. And it was like totally uh, an incredible transformative experience, I think, on an individual level and as a couple, because, you know, we went into this thinking, man, we'll be lucky if we get a shot. And then we kind of came out with, you know, 500 pounds of meat and had to buy a new freezer and didn't know what hit us and didn't know how it happened. And it all just kind of seemed, seemed like an elk dream, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. So how did that work? Did you guys, you have a calling strategy or it was happenstance or how did you, what did you go in with a plan or improvise in the whole way? What happened? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's always a little bit of both and there's um, certainly some stumbling blocks. I think whenever you're hunting with anyone new and especially when it's your significant other, um, we were very disciplined in how we prepared for it. And so I, you know, I practiced my calling, but, you know, he really did the majority of the calling. And I hate when (laughs) I hunt with my dad or other people and they're like, okay, well, we have to go get you one. You know, you're going to tag out first, but 
he really did want to give me an opportunity and we tried to kind of go back and forth um, with who shot and everything. So when it came down to it, um, I ended up being at full draw at the same time he was on the same bull. I told him to shoot and then I stole his shot. So that was kind of a funny moment for us. But long story short, I ended up shooting that bull. It was a perfect shot. And the next day he killed a bigger bull. So he kind of, um, he was okay. With you know, that he point. was really gracious about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, I felt terrible, but it was great. Um, so he called, um, for the most part, although I practiced my bugling and I actually just bought a bugle tube so that I can hopefully return the favor, um, this year. So, so there was a low moment in last season. On a six by yeah, so I would say, yeah, it was I was heartbroken. I mean, I know people get heartbroken, you know, over a lot of stuff, dogs dying or whatever. But um, I had this moment where you know I had gone through the trials and tribulations of my mule deer hunt, and I practiced for six months, you know, ranging outside, um, adjusting my setup really getting tuned in, shooting in different positions, doing a lot of situational drills for shooting. Well, we had this great opportunity on a six by six where he was bedded under a little ledge um, and it was late in the afternoon. So the wind was going perfectly uphill. And I told my fiance to go and he said, no, you go. It's like the best talk opportunity. You can do it. So, you know, I (laughs) ran around the back of the mountain we were on and I stopped down to almost the place we had determined like was the perfect place to take the shot. Um, and I saw antlers and I tried to draw back and I couldn't. And the bull started just walking across my shooting lean. So I drew, I drew the second time and I cow called and he stopped. And it's like this gorgeous, huge bull, just like antlers, you know, glistening in the sun on the edge of this cliff. <laughs> and I was at, I was at full draw and I'm like, this is the moment. Like this is, in my mind, and I know it's not this linear, but in my mind, I'm like, this is the moment, like, I become a bow hunter. Like, all this work for four years, like, it's go time. This is my shot. And I, you know, released my arrow, and I heard it clink on the rocks, and the bull ran off, and I was crying. I didn't have any shoes on, <laughs> so I was stranded. And my, you know, boyfriend had to bring me my shoes. It was very dramatic, but I was like, angry right because it's that moment and it was such an amazing moment I was so grateful for it but at the same time like just my competitive nature I was like so heartbroken I was like well that's it I'm still not a bow hunter right and I know again like I know it's not that linear but to me um in that moment I really felt like I blew it (laughs) and that I mean how can you not right all that preparation and everything that goes into it and uh, what what do you think, or do you know what happened? Did you range it wrong, or just the excitement? It was very steep. It was a steep angle, and I I ranged it wrong. And it was a simple mistake that you know throws people off, and it's so unpredictable. But that's why we love it, and we're so drawn to it, right? And the lows make the highs that much better. And that's why it's like the drama of bow hunting is just like so much more appealing to me than rifle hunting although I'm not uh you know one of those people that says oh you're not a bow hunter you know and I don't shun rifle hunters like 
I think it's all cool. I think there's something to learn from all of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that probably won't be the last time you do that. That's the, the crazy part. Probably not. <laughs> you know, we learn from those mistakes and we right. think about it and we put that extra preparation in, right, to try and to try and call that out. But, you know, I think it just comes with the territory, right? That adrenaline gets going and that excitement's there. And sometimes you just lose your lose your ish um, when it comes down to it. So was that that was prior to totally. you guys arrowing the, the bulls back to back? I'm assuming. Yeah, so that was um, like day five of our hunt. And then, you know, the next day we got into some bulls and um, that's when I killed that evening. And we packed out that night and came back the next morning for a second load. Um, And then we were back in the same spot where I had killed and it was like a ghost town. And my poor fiance was like, well, I guess that's it. The hunt's over, like totally exhausted. Um, And he's like, you know, had got me the bull, which at this point I'm like, Oh no, it's go time. We're not just leaving here with one bull. Like I'm not going to be that burden. Like we have to get you a bull. And he's like, well, we'll just sleep in in the morning. And I'm like, no way, buddy. Like no regrets. We're, you know, waking up. So we got back to where we stashed my head, my elk rack under a bush. And he just like cow calls for the heck of it. And a bull just like roars back. And we realized there were cows like 30 yards away. So, you know, he goes and starts feeding a bush and calling. The bull got really mad and started raking. And that gave him time to, like, close the distance. He got a perfect shot. And in, like, 20 minutes, the bull was down. And we're like, what the heck do we do with another bull? Um, but, yeah, over. we had a <laughs> second bull down. Yeah, That's start awesome. over, yeah. do it all over yeah, again. Yeah, you do it all over yeah. again, right? And there's a little bit of reluctance, like, oh, did I just do that? <laughs> You know, when you walk up to it after packing out, you know, all night the night before and the next day, definitely. It was um, a huge blessing because we ended up being in an amazing spot that was super close to the car. And it took us two loads um, with both elk. So, and then we came back for the heads last. So it worked out really well. I mean, I'm pretty small, but I carry a, a decent load and, you know, he was a beast. So, and there's so much value to doing that as a couple, like it was super cool. So at the end of the day, you know, we sat there and we're like, have our two elves loaded up in our meeting. We're like, okay, let's have a beer. Like, this is unbelievable. It was very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So what are the plans coming up for uh, 2019? Yeah, so um, the draw results are not out for New Mexico, actually. Um they are for just a couple of the tags. So bear and turkey. Um, and luckily I drew the first bear tag I ever put in for. And so it's in the Sergeant's WMA, which is in Northern New Mexico. And I know nothing about bear hunting and I'm going to try to do it with my bow. Um, so it's basically going to be a spot and stock hunt or sitting water. And to me, that's just the fun of it. It's like this whole new adventure. I know nothing about it. I get to learn the animal. I get to learn how to do it. Um, and we're getting married in August. And so the hunt runs through August. So it's probably going to be like a honeymoon bear hunt. That's, oh, that's freaking awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. There's, uh, there's some wives out there. Take note, girls. This is, uh, this is dream stuff for us, for us men. So moving on. Well, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
Um, I was just going to say, we talked about going to Alaska and, you know, he said, well, we could go to the NB and have like this great little cove and fish and everything. And I said, okay, great. But he said the bathroom's outside. And I'm like, my only requirement is that we have a bathroom inside for the honeymoon. <laughs> like other than that, I don't care where we go to a tea that I'm being high maintenance. Cause when we camp, I don't have a bathroom, but I think that's pretty reasonable. <laughs> I would say so. Get to go fish or hunt on your honeymoon. Like I said, that's dream status for most men. <clears throat> so you, yeah. you are a uh, youth hunter ed instructor. Um, so passing down that tradition um, is pretty important, right? Why don't you give us some some background on that and, and your part and what you're doing, and then we'll jump into BHA right after that. Sure. So, you know, I can't say I've done, uh, you know, teaching long. You know, there's other people that have taught for 20 years and deserve much more credit. But I think, um, as we mentioned earlier, like, I have this amazing support system. I'm very blessed. And so I just try to pass that along whenever I can. And so I've had the opportunity to um, teach a few hunter ed classes um, and just interacting with the kids. I mean, to me, you know, it harkens back to my coaching days and I get to apply kind of um, the, that thinking of being a coach to hunting, which is really cool to me. And I think the idea that we're not just creating new hunters, we are creating new ethical hunters that are going to be advocates for, um, you know, public lands and wildlife management. And that's what I really like. And so I know that, you know, not everyone has a dad like mine that has been espousing um, hunter ethics for their entire life. And, you know, I always joke that my dad is tougher than any game warden could ever be. And I just think it's important to try to, you know, impress that upon the young or the new people coming into the sport. And so I've gotten to do a few hunter ed classes that are phenomenal. And I've gotten to be... um a hunter guide or escort for some of the kiddos that scored a hundred on their test and then drew special hunts through um, New Mexico game and fish. And that's just like a super special experience because you go out for the weekend with this kid and their um, companion and you help them harvest. And it's like just always incredible to see them take their first animal. Oh, wow. So that, yeah, that really is bringing you back to that coaching experience kind of full circle there with being able to get out of that hunt with them. That's amazing. Yeah, with the, you know, the parents and all. I mean, sometimes there's people that, you know, are kind of putting pressure on the kid and you're in this interesting <laughs> position of um, it's just like coaching. Just being the liaison and trying to, yeah. it, it really is. Yeah. I mean, I, the people I've hunted with are amazing, but of course you want your kid to tag out. And then there's this like stranger person there trying to keep your kid calm and get the tripod set up. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but it's always so fun. The people I've hunted with are amazing. The numbers, are you seeing any increase or decrease in the number of kids going through that hunter ed? Because that's a big topic right now, right? People are saying, oh, there's a decline because of baby boomers. And, you know, um, what are you seeing as far as numbers? Or are you paying attention to that as the kids are coming through the classes? You know, I don't really know. I mean, I do, you know, honestly, I've done two classes and I do as much as I can. Um, my schedule is 
pretty insane since I am covering four states for backcountry hunters and anglers. But my understanding is New Mexico is doing okay when it's coming to hunting recruitment and um, people applying for the draw here. So, you know, I definitely have been including some of those conversations on a more macro level. And I think we're doing okay here in the state specifically. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, how we compare across the nation. So right into it, BHA, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, I'm going to plug that and say it's my favorite conservation group for several reasons, but why don't you give us your role with BHA and talk about a little bit about what you cover and BHA in general and, you know, go for it. Sure. So BHA is the voice for lands, waters, and wildlife. Um, I am lucky enough to serve as the Southwest Chapter Coordinator. And so I cover Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. And um, essentially, I'm the liaison between headquarters, which is based in Missoula, Montana, and my state. And we are volunteer run. So all of my chapters have, you know, a tremendous group of passionate volunteers and public landowners that drive their local efforts. Um, so that's kind of how it works structurally. I started out as a volunteer and then left the advertising role to take this role on. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of where I sit in. Um, I feel really lucky to be in that position. Um, and I think when it comes to the mission, you know, BHA has three main kind of buckets. Um, one is conserving backcountry landscapes you know, the places we go to find challenge and solace. Um, the second is basically standing up for those lands, whatever that means. You know, sometimes we're working on stream access. Sometimes we're working on um, the water rule, um, like what is kind of moving through right now. And then the third is fair chase principles, which we don't tend to touch quite as much, but we're there and we're cognizant of, you know, what's happening. And the best examples of that are like high fence operations or using drones or live action game cams. You know, that's kind of not who we are at our core. So what's the, cause that's one of the, you just said it, right? There's not something that we hear a lot. Um, can you talk about the fair chase principle and, and where BHA stands on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, fair to just want to make sure that hunting is done um, in a way that that keeps the challenge, right? That you have to have uh, woodsmanship skills and outdoor skills to um, to hunt and fish. And I think that's partially becoming more important as we see hunting being monetized. Um, and maybe that's partially driven by this like very um, visible nature of hunting today with social media and um, you know, it, it's just maybe more relevant now than it was 50 years ago <laughs> and technology, right? So how is technology going to change hunting moving forward? We don't want it to change having to know, you know, what kind of um, vegetation elk like or, you know, how, how to track, um, how to find time. So that challenge, we just want to make sure like, you know, just same as Boone and Crockett, same as these other conservation organizations that you have to put effort in to be able to harvest the animal and have this like genuine hunting experience and the challenge of it and the unpredictability. We don't want to lose that. Like 
how sad would it be to know that you're going to go kill something when you walk out the door? Right. And it, I mean, for most of us, right, it's pretty important. But then there's there's people that say, you know, if I can hunt it, I'm going to hunt it. If I can, you know, most times afford it, I'm going to, you know, go after it. So, I mean, I, I to me, there's there there's an argument there, but sort of like that's not my deal. Um, but, but one could argue like, if that's how I choose to pursue it, then, then why not? You know, when it comes to the high fence thing, I, yeah. Yeah. There's certainly arguments for some people doing that, right? Like whatever they're, they're fueling conservation efforts with wanting to go, do this certain type of hunt. I mean, that's not who we are at our core. And I think, you know, a five minute conversation with most of our members would, um, you know, pretty quickly show you that we want the challenge and we want to know that it's us versus um, the animal while, you know, we of course have a reverence for them. Yeah. It's like, to me in our modern age, like, where else? I mean, you can, of course, do it through many activities, but, you know, you, you go and you're connected to the landscape and to the wildlife on this, like, totally different level. Um, and it challenges you in ways that you don't even know are there till you're, in, you know, till you're on top of a mountain and there's a blizzard and you're trying to figure out how to stay warm and thaw out your, your water so that you can have a drink. I mean, it's like this very basic, like, um, I don't know. It's like elemental, right? Like it makes you more grateful for oh, so yeah. many things because it challenges you. I I totally get it. But, you know, again, there's there's going to be folks that argue, you know, I should be able to. I mean, I don't know. But there's uh, all kind of adversarial conversations we could have amongst ourselves as hunters. And I think that that stuff goes crazy. So BHA's numbers uh, climbed like crazy last year, um, and I know that there's a goal to hit uh, even higher. I think last year the goal for September was thirty thousand new members or thirty thousand member total, um, and that number started out fairly low, and I think it exceeded the membership. What's the goal for this year, and how are we looking thus far? Yeah, so we ended last year with 30,000 members, which is an incredible accomplishment. We're one of the fastest growing, I think, if not the fastest growing uh, conservation organizations out there. Um, The goal for this year is 50,000. And so I think what we're seeing um, on a North American level, because we do have um, chapters covering our um, two Canadian provinces, is that people are kind of connecting with BHA's message and realizing that they can make an impact by getting involved. You know, BHA is a volunteer driven organization and, you know, we're not going to ask you for $2,000, but we might ask you to become a member, make a donation and give your time. Um, For instance, during the legislative session, we have many people um, with their ears to the ground, keeping an eye on stuff for us that, are willing to show up to meetings and help and, you know, sign the action alerts that we put out. And so that kind of different model is really appealing to a lot of people like myself that, you know, I can't go, um, I can't go spend a lot of discretionary income to support the things I love, but I can certainly give my time um, and my attention 
and feature that on my social platforms and speak really passionately about the things I care about. Right. Because that's a big deal. And you hear it a lot, right? Well, how do I know where my money's going? Well, it's not always about the 25 30 or $40 membership. Um, and I think that only goes so far anyway, right? I mean, you can give that $30 and if that's all you're doing, not to say that it's not important, but, you know, being quote unquote boots on the ground, I think has a far greater impact than just donating that money. Yeah. And that's, it's very genuine and you're very connected to the mission, right? And um, and, you know, something Lan, Tani, our CEO, always says, President and CEO, is we punch above our weight. And that's because we have um, these passionate members that are, you know, willing to get engaged and then activate the local community around these issues. And that comes from pure passion and heart and drive and a love for public lands and what being a backcountry hunter or angler represents. It does not come from dollar signs, although we certainly... Uh, appreciate and support, you know, all of the money that flows in and try to make uh, wise use of all of those funds. And I, and, and okay. So I'm going to kind of back myself up. I don't want to belittle the importance of the money by any stretch of the imagination, right? Because that is of the utmost importance when you're battling some of those big anti powerhouses that have millions and millions of dollars that are constantly attacking us. So I don't want to belittle that at all, right? I mean, it is important, but that boots on the ground is is up there as as well. So, so how can people get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, the best way to get involved is just to um, you know get online backcountryhunters.org and see if there's a chapter in your area. Um, some of our chapters are specifically related to the states that they're in, um, and some are more region-wide. And um, what's kind of cool about BHA is we're um, a somewhat young organization, and we're growing rapidly, right? And so there's a lot of opportunity um, for us to um, pivot and move quickly and really have an impact. Um, you know, if there's something that makes sense to do, it's very entrepreneurial and we figure out how to do what's right. And that's what really attracted me um, to the format and to the organization as a volunteer. And so I would say, you know, look on online, on Facebook, on Instagram, on the backcountry website and see if there's a chapter near you. And if not, we're always looking to start chapters in the States where, you know, we don't have um, a BHA flag put down yet and tie stubble field um, kind of heads up that whole operation. So, you know, all of our information is under the staff portion of the website. So you can reach out um, and, you know, help us get something started if there's not already something in your area. Yeah, we have uh, Mr. Russell Kuhlman for uh, my beautiful state of California here. Um, and I really like to, well, it's it's kind of building every every pint night I go to. It seems like there's you know just a few more people and a few more people and a few more people. It's it's pretty awesome to see it growing here. Um, and I don't want to keep beating California up because I do love where I live, but to see it here in California is pretty important. And to see that growth has just been yeah, it's been pretty uh, pretty great here recently. Russ does a phenomenal job, and um, 
it can kind of be counterintuitive um, where BHA succeeds. So um, in my region, you know, I have Texas and Utah. Um, in Texas, you know, there's a small percentage of public land, but almost for that reason and because of that tension, um, Texas is my fastest growing chapter. And they doubled in size last year, which is phenomenal. I think they went from 500 or 550 to, you know, 1200. Um, the reason being those people understand the need for public land and they're very passionate about it. Um, and Utah is my second biggest and they grew tremendously last year as well. And so I would just say, you know, in those instances where you think, oh, this isn't the best state for public land or hunting, um, there's a huge opportunity to kind of turn that on its head and um, really make a make big waves. So how do you, you bring up Texas, right? And, and it's something, it's crazy, right? It's something like 1%, and I could be off base with that number, but I've heard as low as 1% of the land in Texas is is public land. So how do you impact a state that, I mean, it's just about protecting what's left, if, if I understand it correctly. Because how do you turn something like that around? Yeah, so um, some of the things my board members have, you know, shared with me is, um, I think it's a little higher than 1%, maybe like, you know, around 2 but um, <laughs> they say even 2% of Texas is big, right? Texas is a huge, huge state. Right. So when you look at Texas compared to the size of some of the states back east, and it's like, okay, like then all of a sudden it kind of shifts your perspective, right? So that's the first thing I would say just to kind of put it in the right context. Um, the second piece of that is protecting what is there. And then there's efforts being made by our Texas chapter to um, work with Army Corps of Engineers to say, hey, we have this area that could potentially have hunting. Um, what can we do as an organization to help move that in a positive direction? And so I think there's opportunity there. Um, in many of these places, it comes down to, um, and not just in Texas, but on a... So in Texas, you know, something my board is looking on is um, looking at is can we open up access um, on Army, Army Corps of Engineer land um, or other places. And what we see is a lot of these places where there could potentially be hunting, um, there's not because of funding or a lack of, you know, infrastructure to run and manage the hunts. And so um, we're taking a look at where um, we might be able to help move the dial on that and change that because, uh, you know, there, there are opportunities that are there. We just need to um, be good stewards and be proactive in um, helping the agencies make that happen um, in some instances. So, and, I, and I'm sorry for my naivety on it all. So that's why I'm asking the question. So with, with something like that, I mean, and I'm sure it's kind of case by case, but how, what kind of process or what kind of time, I should say, does it usually take to see movement in, in those type of situations? Yeah. So, I mean, we just kind of started diving in on this. I mean, I think um, as far as I've been around, we haven't seen um, 
you know, seen a property go from totally closed on thing to totally open up. So I think it is going to be a long process, but hopefully we can develop some good case studies that we can say, hey, here's a great success story. You know, here's kind of how um, this can happen and hopefully open people's eyes and then spur them to get involved and help um, the agency see that it's a positive thing. Um, so yeah, to my knowledge, we haven't, we haven't done that yet, but I've been with DHA a very short time. I'm just about to hit my one year anniversary and, um, you know, I'm very confident that there's going to be a lot of great movement in the next year in terms of developing those relationships, being a key stakeholder, um, amongst all the other amazing conservation organizations and, um, having a real impact in terms of hopefully opening up some areas to public land hunting. So, and that, I think that's pretty important, right? For people to understand though, is, is, you know, even if it was, if you were able to say, oh yeah, six months to a year, <clears throat> but this is, this is about the long game, right? When we start talking about, you know, what BHA and other organizations are doing. Um, and, and unfortunately sometimes we're short-sighted, right? So somebody might say, oh, I'm, you know, got my BHA membership and then, you know, six months, a year later, well, I don't think I'm going to renew this. I haven't really seen anything done. So I think understanding that it's a long, it can be a long, long game, right? Cause a lot of this is politics. Um, and then like you said, figuring out, you know, how to be stewards and how to work with the other agencies. I think that's pretty important, you know, for folks to understand as well. So how does, how does the commingling work with the other conservation organizations, right? You have BHA and Sportsman's Alliance, RMEF, um, Wild Turkey. Are is there a commingling of efforts um, from from other organizations with BHA? Is everyone you know? Do we play in the same sandbox? How does that function? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know something I really respect about BHA is we're willing to um, collaborate and work with the right people um, in any situation. And um, you know, I was recently at the um, WAFWA, um, the WAFWA um, conference in Tucson, which is like the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which was a tremendous gathering of, you know, wildlife managers from the Western states and a lot of amazing NGOs. And I got to speak to a lot of people and came to the conclusion that we're our own ecosystem, right? So we all fill our own niche. Um, we, you know, don't agree with all of our um, like-minded organizations on every single issue because they're all nuanced. They all have undercurrents and we all have our own core competencies and priorities. But BHA does a really good job of deciding, hey, you're a great partner for this issue. Let's work together. Um, and that's something, like I said, I really respect as we'll um, take it as it comes and figure out how to move forward um, on these issues um, with the right partners. That's good info. Good info. So I'm going to pull you out of work right now. Let's get back to, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to keep on work. I, I just think it's, you know, to, to get that kind of information out to everyone is important as far as, you know, I'm concerned. Those are some of the questions people may ask. Um, yeah. And we just, you just don't hear it a lot, right? It's not something that that's just out there. So Thank you for that. Um, so I sent you a bullet laying them down and you said, I'm not super sure what this is about. So you've been hunting how many years? Well, I've been hunting really seriously um, 
like about five years. Okay, so you scroll through that Instagram and you look at what you've accomplished in that amount of time, you know, as a quote unquote new hunter, um, you're laying it down, right? You got two big horn ewes, a uh, couple mule deer, cow elk, bull elk, wild turkey with a bow. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a heck of an accomplishment, right? What, is it just diving into it that that's lended itself to that success? I know you said it was, you know, a lot of being able to tag around along with some, some pretty solid hunters in your family. Um, but sometimes that's not what makes it right. It has to be your drive. What, what's led to that success? Yeah. So, um, I mean, when we talk about success, you know, there's obviously different scales for that. I mean, I've had so many, um, quote unquote, successful hunts without uh, the trophy picture, but certainly I love showing, I know, I know, you know, that too, but just for everybody else, I, I love, um, the experience. And so, you know, whether it's like ice fishing for a day in a new spot or a trophy elk hunt, or, I mean, not that I've, I trophy mine's a trophy cause I shot it with a bow. Um, you know, I am just so passionate about it. And so I just kind of have this process where I, you know, find this thing. I learn everything I can about the animal. Um, I watch YouTube videos, I read, and I have a biologist father and a sister and a brother-in-law that's a guide. And I just kind of tap into that and everybody I know. And, you know, I work really hard to prepare myself. And so it's a combination of that for sure. And I think those resources are for the most part, you know, available to most people besides having, you know, my amazing dad that has taken me and my sister that has taken me um, out into the field and encouraged me. Um, but I think it's a combination of that support and your own preparation and time. So, you know, it's not an accident that um, I practice all the shots I practiced for my elk hunt. I mean, you know, I'm at the range four to five times a week before um, I'm going to have a tag in my pocket. And so that's what I really think it is. I think anyone can do it. You just need to put the effort in and have a little discipline. So do you think that there's anything to be said about going into the field optimistic or with a positive attitude that lends itself to, and I'm not going to say success because you just checked me on it, um, to that punch tag? Oh, totally. Because you have to just like love being out there no matter, you know, how miserable it is or um, how many animals you're seeing. And what I always like is the mountain gives you a reality check. It makes you a better person. Um, you know, it. I always notice on my first, you know, day or the first few hours of a hard hunt, I'm like grumpy. I'm like, oh man, like this is really uncomfortable. It's pushing me to this different place. And then I kind of settle into um, whatever level of discomfort that I'm facing and I tune in to what's around me and I just, you know, shift. And I think mentality, um, you know, your, your mindset of preparation and knowing you're, you're ready to be there, both in terms of gear and your skill set. Um, and, and just having a constant positive attitude. And I don't want to sound like a life coach, but it's true. It's like, how do you respond to the challenge when you, you know, have to 
venture two miles off the beaten path to find water, or you have cactus in your leg, or there's a rattlesnake, or you think there's a mountain lion. Like you just have to suck it up and you have to get through it. And the mountain gives you no other choice. And that's what's so cool. Yeah, that's I, I've heard that a couple times now. And and I think I'm the opposite of that, right? That first couple, three days, that's when I'm blissful. <laughs> and then you'd start talking about the fourth day, the fifth day, and I'm just like, okay, this sucks. And it, it, it's usually like <laughs> yeah. a swing, right? I mean, a day or two of just this is miserable, it's too hot or whatever it is. And then it it that switch flips back on. And I think a lot of that is just the anticipation, you know, that – that nine months of build up to season. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, I've heard that a couple of times where, where uh, people say, yeah, it's, you know, getting out there and getting back into that mindset and, and, you know, it sounds, I don't know, embracing the suck, so to speak, takes a minute for some folks. Yeah. And I think it's just an attitude adjustment for me. I mean, you know, in our society today, we're so used to entitlement and, you know, getting what we want, just, with a click of a button and it just grounds me and takes me back to reality that like, you know, I have an able body and I can walk around the woods and enjoy nature and be really happy to have, um, you know, shelter and warmth and a good meal and water. And it just is like a slap across the face for everything that we're stressing about um, in our day-to-day lives. And it's funny how the mountain makes all that seem so minuscule and minor when you're out there. It's like, you know, that doesn't even exist to a point, but that appreciation for being out there when you, you know, look back on it, it just, yeah, it's an amazing thing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So what do you have on the horizon? Um, you said you were doing some riding. Why don't you give us a little bit about that and tell us, uh, some more about, uh, what's coming up? Yeah. So I'm uh, by no means a professional writer. You know, I have an MBA, but um, I really think it's important that um, beyond focusing on creating new hunters or focusing on the hunting community that we are talking to non hunters and maybe even anti hunters and trying to share our message with them of, um, you know, health and wellness and food and a relationship with our food. And so I'm lucky enough to be writing for um, a magazine here in New Mexico called Edible. And they're, you know, kind of sprinkled across um, the U.S., I believe. But, you know, I just reached out to this um, publication and said, hey, I love some of the stuff you guys are doing. Um, They're basically, you know, doing a lot of community food education and trying to get people interested in where their food comes from and Um, the best way to butcher and process and forage. Um, And I am starting to write stories for them. So short little articles that will be um, in, I think, five editions um, printed here in New Mexico this year. So it's a little scary. It's a new thing for me, but I hope I can um, shine a positive light on fishing and hunting and conservation and the larger um, conversation about food um, and hopefully you know, shift the perspective on um, people that want to demonize hunters or think that we're heartless and don't appreciate um, the animals that we're taking. Right. Murder, death, kill ones. So, but there, there seems to be, and and I've heard it 
several times. I'm sure you've had heard it. The you know millennial shift. I hate titling anybody, but the millennial shift to wanting to be more in touch with with where their food comes from. Um, so that's a positive, you know, for our for our hunting community. Um, is that where your articles? I mean, it sounds like they're more to them than that. But is is there a target for that group specifically? Um, is that something you're chasing? Um, I think my target is just um, the kind of locavore focused person. And it is true that we're in this special time where, um, you know, we're, we're having millennials pay attention to the products they buy and the food that they eat and having, um, you know, this kind of social focus when it comes to their purchasing decisions, which is phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a bend there to share that with those people that could then say, hey, that sounds really interesting. Maybe I could go harvest my own free-range, hormone-free meat. Um, mine is a, you know, my tact isn't necessarily just focusing on them. But yeah, I mean, of, of course, I hope it's a bright byproduct that they say, oh, she's making something out of bone marrow um, and using, you know, a lot of pieces of the animal. This is really cool. So um I think society is just in a place where we're thinking about, um, you know, conserving the earth's resources and not trashing it a little bit more um, and how to be part of a more natural life cycle instead of, you know, sourcing our stuff from who knows where and having no connection to, you know, the conditions or the life that that chicken nugget, (laughs) you know, (laughs) had prior to us buying it at the drive-thru window. And I think people want, a genuine experience and they also want healthfulness. And so the health movement and um, that move in terms of a social consciousness, I think is um, huge in terms of us having momentum to bring people into what we do in a really mindful way that will seem more humane to them. Food is a better entry point than, you know, showing them a trophy animal while we have a you know, a big smile on our face. And I mean, I'm not against grip and grins, but that's the bottom line is if you show the steak, it's a different uh, emotional reaction than if you show yourself posed with a dead animal. Right, right. They're able to gather more from that steak and that story than they, you know, the grip and grin, they're probably not going to read that caption below it without first uh, frowning upon it. So what would you say to... uh New hunters, women hunters, women that are thinking about getting into hunting, what would be your message? Yeah, I is just do it. It's so amazing and so rewarding, and it can seem like there's a lot of barriers, but there are so many programs. Um, you know, learn to hunt programs through state agencies or um, NGOs and individuals that are willing to help. Um, I also would just pitch BHA as an amazing organization to connect with people that are willing to help you. You know, we have a ton of people that don't really have that community. And a problem with a lot of these learn to hunt programs is like you go once or twice to some skills based um, training. So let's say, you know, you're learning how to fly fish or you're learning um, how to shoot a gun. And that's great, but they don't continue on. And I think BHA is a great place to. Um, get plugged into a sportsman's community that is inviting and diverse and very knowledgeable. Um, so you could 
you know, not know anything and come be part of your BHA chapter and connect with people that are like beyond accomplished when it comes to um, the outdoor lifestyle that are probably willing to help you. Um, and so, you know, our pint nights, which happen almost monthly in every state or bigger events, you know, just come talk to us, come try, don't be scared. Um, and there are resources there to help you and you won't regret it. And I mean, you'll only regret it if you don't try. You don't. So you might as well go for it. Got crazy networking too at the pint nights. It is uh, phenomenal. It, uh, you meet some great people at pint nights. So I like to do what I call the conservation quick or future of hunting. Um, I'm thinking that you're probably going to roll on both of them. Um, so give us Katie's conservation quick slash future of hunting. Oh, wow. So I would just say, you know, the future of hunting to me is brightness because of that locavore angle, but we don't just want new hunters and we don't just want people putting meat on the plate. We want people that will be engaged as members of the community and ethical members of the community. And so we can fight for access, but we have to push um, responsible use. So if we bring in, you know, 50,000 new hunters next year um, and we're disrespectful and we're trashing the land, then the model doesn't work. And so, to me, the most foundational core piece of the future of hunting is being respectful on all fronts. And that's the use of the land, um, how we treat the wildlife, and how we interact with um, others. And the others could be non-hunters because perception is reality. We are a minority and we have to learn to share our shrinking landscape with other user groups. So that would be my pitch is like, we want to create new hunters, but everybody's got to be an advocate. And I hate to say this, but there's like a lot of public land posers. There's people that use and love public land and don't stand up for it. And I would just hope the people that already are hunters would take action, you know, would realize they can't take it for granted and would do something to protect what they love. Boom. There it is right there. Engaged, ethical, responsible use. I think that was probably the three most powerful words I, I got in that. I mean, that's hugely important, right? I'm going to say it again. Engaged, ethical, and responsible use. That's, yeah, that was a good drop. So how can folks reach out to you if uh, you're looking for them to do that or if they choose to and, and uh, get a hold of you there in one of your states with BHA? Yeah, so the best way to reach me um, professionally is uh, my email is dlorenzo at backcountryhunters.org and they can find me, you know, on the staff page of the BHA website. Um, and personally, um, on Instagram, it's, my handle is New Mexico Huntress and same thing on Facebook, New Mexico Huntress. You know, I try to help people and try to respond and um, be a resource. So I would just say, you know, especially new hunters um, or people that see um, issues that touch on BHA's mission in those areas. You know, I'm really passionate about what I do. Feel free to drop me a line. I'd love to talk to you. So, and if, if I offend you, just tell me to shut up. Please explain okay. 
the huntress thing to me. I've asked this question on of, of from several guests, and I can't get an answer. So for me, when I look at Katie, I see a hunter, right? Explain the huntress to me, please. Silence me on this for for good. <laughs> I can't silence you because honestly, like I have no explanation. I <laughs> randomly picked this. I picked the name, like not thinking about it, you know, four years ago. I worked in an ad agency. <laughs> My whole Instagram is a social experiment so that when I was talking to huge clients, I could say, I have experience. Here's what I do. And that is how I kept up with um, changing algorithms and changing functionality on social sites. So that I could be, um, you know, really articulate in these client meetings. And so your question is timely because April Vokey put out a story yesterday on the, the term hundreds. Oh, I got it. And I put a question on my, you have to read it. Um, and it's, you know, nothing. April did a great job looking at all sides. My Instagram handle being huntress, I posed the question, should I change my name or not? And I got some really interesting responses. You know, I do think sometimes professionally, maybe it's a detriment to me. Maybe people see that name and they think, oh, God, who's this girl? Um, but, you know, on the flip side, I pick this random name. It's not that big of a deal to me. I do what I do. And I think people will see, um, you know, who I am and judge for themselves, themselves once um, they see how I talk about things. And so I'm not too worried about it um, in terms of the name. Uh, now it kind of even gives me an icky feeling because everyone else <laughs> hates, hates on it so much. But, you know, I, I mean, I just didn't put that much thought into it, to be honest. And now I'm like, yeah, who cares? I mean, people know me by that. It's fine. And maybe I was joking with one of my colleagues. I can come in as an underdog. You know, they're thinking <laughs> I'm one thing. And I get to surprise them and be another. Right, right. Yeah, because, again, you're, you're laying it down. Anybody jumps on that page is going to be like, holy crap. So, yeah, that's just something that, uh, yeah, I've just been wondering about for quite some time. And I haven't uh, yeah, yeah. really got a solid on that one. So, yeah. Well, read April's article. And the other thing I would say is, like, first world problems. Like, yeah, right. we care a lot about. <laughs> yes. Like we care a lot about people's Instagram handles, but like that policy or that bill that's moving through your legislature, we don't we care don't about and we're that. not talking about. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. That way, you know what? You might've shut me up. You might've shut me up on it with that, with that <laughs> comeback there. I might, I'm gonna have to give you that one. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate your time greatly. Um, you know, taking your time out of your super busy schedule and sitting down and sharing your story and a little bit about BHA. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Um, anything you want to say as a closing, get out there for the folks? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is there's so much uh, fulfillment and self-sufficiency that can come from hunting. And, you know, you're never going to know what that is until you do it. And so anyone wanting to try it, I mean, it just makes life better it gives you a sense of adventure um it's going to push you to places you never thought you could go and i just really hope anyone wanting to try it just dives off the deep end um and goes for it because you don't know what it's going to be till you get there and it's going to be better than anything you could have ever expected awesome what a closing 
Again, Katie, thank you very much for your time. We'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Guy. You can catch up with Katie on Instagram at New Mexico Huntress. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down. Hi, this is Weston Jenkins with Disabled Outdoorsman, the founder of an organization where we choose and let individuals come in the outdoors. We have many people across the nation that refuse to give up, and our brand is going to represent them, and now you can too. You can go to our website at www.disabledoutdoorsman.com, or you can find us on Instagram at DisabledOutdoorsmanUSA. We want you to be a part of the cause with us, and let's make a difference one day at a time.